Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Gabrielle Hakoen, and I am here with my BFF, IFB cult survivor, Sadie Carpenter. Hello, hello. I'm Sadie Carpenter, and I did not have to read any terrible books or great books about terrible things this week, and I'm really (laughs) thankful for that. Yeah, I'm thankful for that, too. We're talking about something much lighter and also much heavier. Yep. uh, Depending on... (laughs) who you are and what your experiences are. This is going to be fun. Yeah, well, your co-host is me and my experiences are my experiences. So we know this one isn't going to be too light. But I was wondering, (laughs) I was wondering, uh, who are you cheering for in the Super Bowl this week? Well, as you know, as our listeners know, my team is the Raiders, formerly the Oakland Raiders, now the Las Vegas Raiders. And sadly, They were eliminated in the first round of the playoffs, but next year is looking up. We got a new head coach. We've still got a great quarterback. And so while I personally don't have any skin in this game, I think I'm going to have to be pulling for Cincinnati because I just love a good underdog story. 
To be honest, I probably won't watch more than like 20 minutes of the Super Bowl unless it goes into <laughs> overtime because for some reason I really, really like when games go into overtime. Well, your Super Bowl was like a month ago. Yeah, we're not going to talk about that one because I don't want to start this episode depressed. <laughs> <laughs> no. Not that I'm not going to become depressed in the course of doing this episode. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, that's a, a real a real possibility. No, for those that don't know, Sadie is... Uh, Sadie, I, Sadie and I both love football. Sadie mainly watches college football, NCAA football, and I mostly watch NFL football. Although, like, I'll tune in if Oregon's got a big game. Go Ducks! See, and I, I'm the opposite. I watch college football, but I don't watch a lot of professional. Ever since my very distant cousin Peyton Manning retired, I just I haven't cared about pro football very much. It's also much less fun when I'm not watching it with my brothers. Oh, yeah, that's a thing. I don't know. I didn't know you were related to Peyton Manning. So as far as I know, if my genealogy is correct, Peyton and Eli Manning are my fifth cousins on my dad's side. Hmm. So the relation is through it's through my dad's dad's mom. So my paternal great grandmother was sisters to Archie Manning's grandmother. Oh, okay. Peyton Manning. That's a guy that you like you could follow that guy into battle. I feel yeah. like, you, you know what I'm and saying? I, yeah, and I've, I, I have gotten a lot of mileage out of that whole, like, oh, yeah, I'm related to Peyton Manning. I watched a not insignificant amount of football with my brothers growing up and having moved around the country so much as a kid because of my dad's work as a pastor. We didn't feel attached to any region to pick a team based on where we lived. So we all just kind of picked teams that we liked for other reasons. Well, you grew up outside St. Louis, yeah, so time, we right? yeah. we mainly liked the Rams because we were in the area. But one of my brothers really glommed on to the Patriots and Tom Brady. Yeah, he just retired, didn't he? Who are so I'm going to ask like who who are you pulling for on Sunday? You think because uh, besides Jesus, of course, oh, I figure. <laughs> Yeah. No, I figure I should tell you, Joe Burrow, he won the Heisman and the national championship when he was at LSU and Matthew Stafford played for Georgia. So I don't know if that affects it for you at That's all. That's kind of a net neutral if there's a SEC guy on both sides. Yeah. And if neither, neither one of them, of them is from Alabama. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Probably the Rams just because they used to be the St. Louis. Fair. So for this episode, uh, we are going to talk about in honor of Super Bowl Sunday, some of the experiences of masculinity in the IFB. Obviously, I wasn't raised as a man in the IFB. So what I want to do for this episode is I'll tell you what I observed as an outsider and set up this concept from my perspective. And then we're going to revisit the topic of masculinity, toxic masculinity in the IFB in the near future with someone who did grow up as a man in the IFB. And we'll get his thoughts on the insider perspective. That one is one we're really excited for. Uh, but today is going to be a great discussion. Before we get into that, uh, the Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and it is the show about Sadie Carpenter, my co-host's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. So we talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our mission to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom 
freedom of religion. So if you like this show, if you are a fan of this show, there's several things that you can do to support us. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast, where we have extended and uncensored versions of most of our episodes. Um, You can join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus, and you can uh, hang out with and, and talk to other fans of the show. You can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. The fourth thing that you can do is if you have any cult materials lying around your house, uh, from time to time, we do an episode uh, like we did last week where we reviewed cult materials that have been sent to us by listeners. So uh, if you have something that you think we might be interested in, send us a message. Yeah, I do have to vet what I accept just because I live in an apartment and I... (laughs) I only have so much room for cult materials. Finally, the thing that you can do that helps us the most is to recommend our show to your friends, your family, your coworkers, anybody who you think might benefit from it, uh, your enemies as well, anyone who you think might like it. I've seen a lot of people tagging us recently in Facebook groups and subreddits, um, or people will request entrance to the Facebook group and it'll say, oh, my sister sent me here or my brother or my family member sent me here. And that is the main way that we have grown. Yeah, our uh, we have more than 10,000 listeners now, which is crazy. More than 10,000 people listen to us, which is more than most IFB churches, Sadie. More, uh, we have <laughs> far more true. than that. That does make you feel kind of good. It's almost as many as like a First Baptist Church of Hammond at its peak. And finally, uh, speaking of people who have helped us a great deal, I want to thank our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons, all of them. So that is Dee Keppel, Eleanor, Donahue, uh, that's a new one. Emery Fairlosser, Hope Norum, Jessica Tambo, Kate Terwee, uh, Catherine Schneider, Kathleen Moncrief, Kristen Marie, Linda Morgan, Rachel Bernadowitz, Rebecca Hoyt, Sarah Reese, Shane Horton, and as always, Wes the Cowboy. We love you, Wes the Cowboy. Ah, uh, man. There's a thank lot you so much to all of our patrons and a special thank you to our Faith Promise Missions patrons. Y'all have kept this show running and we really appreciate you. Yeah, you guys are all the people that make this show possible. Thank you so much. Now, Sadie. Yes. Maybe this is a bit of like a harebrained theory. Maybe this is like a bit of armchair psychology. But I personally believe that inside all of us, there is like a little bit of cult follower. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. Like there's a little bit of cult follower. Like we all like feeling like we're part of something. That's just part of being human. Um, And we all like feeling that sort of unconditional devotion to something that... it makes us feel like we're part of something greater. It makes us feel like, it, it, you know, it inflates our ego a little bit. And I think that we all have some aggression inside of us as well. And now this isn't something that needs to be destroyed or done away with. Uh, you know, it's something that we need to express and we need to act on in a healthy way. For some of us, you know, maybe it's being deep into one fandom or another. But for a lot of us, I think that maybe following sports teams or playing sports can accomplish that, but obviously in a much more healthy way than joining a cult. 
I think you're spot on with that. I think that humans are inherently tribal and things like sports or favorite bands tend to fill in that gap when we're not living in a, in a society where tribalism is a big part of life. I'm curious because obviously, you know, the IFB is big on traditional masculinity type of things, uh, which would include sports, which would include football, especially. But also, you know, if you're out soul winning all the time, how are you going to have time to go to football practice or train or, or watch Sunday night football because you'd have to miss Sunday night church for that one? So in my experience, boys in the IFB were def definitely not encouraged to play team sports unless it was through the church. I remember hearing preaching about if you're skipping church to go to your kids' sports games, then you're teaching them that sports are more important than Jesus and they're going to turn out badly. A lot of churches would have sports teams teams, depending on if they could work it out where there wouldn't be games on Sundays. There are some old stories about First Baptist Church of Hammond's softball team, which um, Jack Hiles played on. But really big churches might have intramural leagues, so it's all within the church and they can make all the practices and games on days where there aren't church activities. Kind of like in King of the Hill when there was the Strickland propane softball team like oh. that. Yeah. And that's that's a double whammy because not only does the adult or kid who is playing on that team not miss church for sports, but it's also another thing that you have to show up at church for. So the family is even more involved at church and they're there more days a week. As far as watching Sunday night football, most people I knew just DVR'd it and then watched it after church. Yeah. And this was before, you know, everyone was on social media and you'd have it spoiled for you before you got home, which is. Yeah. I, I yeah. left the IFB in around 2013. It was, you know, a couple of years of process on both sides of that year. <laughs> but social media was a thing, but it wasn't a thing that everybody had and it wasn't the thing that it is now. But say you went to like Hammond Baptist High School or something, would they have a football team? Because we all know, we talked a few weeks ago about how they had cheerleaders because Jack Hiles was personally selecting the cheer squad. But I suppose if you went to a school associated with the church, then they could schedule football so that it never interfered with Jesus. So actually, Hammond Baptist, even the biggest IFB schools like that almost never have football. I get the feeling it's because they can't afford the insurance huh. if somebody gets hurt. I did a small amount of looking around on the internet. Uh, according to almanacsports.com, Hammond Baptist had a football team for one season in 1986. More typical sports for IFB schools would be baseball, basketball, soccer, maybe wrestling. The Hammond Baptist wrestling program is one of their big things. Dude, I would 100% go to an IFB wrestling event. You know what I'm like picturing in my head right now? I'm picturing a wrestler that, you know, named the Sword of the Lord doing like, <laughs> you, you know, like a rebound double clothesline on Satan and the Beast and then dragging them back to hell. Like, that sounds amazing. You know, like if I were an IFB wrestler, what would my persona be? Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, what's my shake? What's my signature move? You know how, like, uh, The Rock's got, the, the like, the people's elbow and Stone Cold Steve Austin has the Stone Cold Stunner? I'm not sure if I can be helpful with signature moves because I ha I don't know the names of any of those things. <laughs> so, like, so first we've got to, like, think of our wrestler persona, okay? Okay. We're coming up with a fake IFB wrestler. What's that going to be? Okay, what if we did a play on one of the people responsible for the Bible's translation into English and then later the King James? So, like, uh, I don't know, Calvin, Zwingli, Wycliffe, King James. Go a little more modern, maybe Schofield, because then your move can be hitting people with a giant Bible. 
Oh, that's good. Okay. Yeah, your wrestler name is like a brother Wycliffe or uh or brother Schofield. Oh yeah, and you could call everyone my brother, like Hulk Hogan. <laughs> they do that in the IFB anyway, so that would totally work. Yeah. Okay. And then like the the posturing thing that your character does before a match can be ripping false translations in half. You know, like how people rip phone books to show how strong they are. That, but like have them labeled as non-KJV translations. Somebody's ripping the message just right into... <laughs> people, people really liked what we had to say about the message. Yes. No. Okay. So the finishing move, he sets you up and he has like a sidekick who's like his assistant pastor. Like he sets you up and then the assistant pastor brings like a KJV Bible into the ring. And his finishing move is he just like hits you in the face with the KJV Bible. I think that's, I think that's great. (laughs) This is brilliant. Like, so it can be called like the Bible bash. Like that can be the name of the move, the Bible bash or the 1611, you know, the 1611 slam. And then he hits you with the Bible and then he walks up to you and and, like he wakes you up from the coma that like hitting you with the Bible (laughs) puts you in. And then you have to like agree that you're going to get saved. Uh, I just thought of this, but there could also be um, a move titled around something around slain in the spirit. (laughs) This could totally work. This is this is incredible. Why has this not been done? Oh, I think this has been done. Really? (laughs) Yeah, because having like WWE wrestling with characters like the Sword of the Lord, that was definitely something that they did for like um, Bus Kid Church and also youth conferences, bus promotions, that kind of thing. So I can tell you that something like this has definitely been done. Is this like the type of thing, like when, uh, at, at like spring program, when you have the, like the, the motorcycle daredevil evangelist? Yes. They, they set up like a wrestling ring. Yeah, it would be a promotion for the kids, but, but they would, yeah, they definitely would do stuff like this. <laughs> God. I feel like I should clarify though, at Hammond Baptist they're doing like Olympic wrestling, not WWE wrestling. That's not as cool. That's really not as cool. Sorry to anybody who does wrestling out there, but it's just like I just want to say like this annoys me because the (laughs) HB wrestling team is allowed to wear like regular wrestling clothes and their immodest shoulders are all and like immodest shoulders and calves are out for everybody to see and i think that it's hypocritical obviously it was only the boys that got to do wrestling the girls didn't get to do wrestling did they oh oh yeah right so back to football hiles anderson (laughs) does have flag football intramural teams they have the turkey bowl every year which is the championship game for their intramural football league the weather is usually the worst uh i don't know maybe god disapproves of them spending their time on such frivolous activities i don't know i find it really surprising that the ifb doesn't support something like so traditionally masculine as football that like that really catches me off guard i feel like i would think that they'd be the ones who you know they're the type that are like leading the charge being like football has gotten too soft these days with all this talk of safety like oh i've definitely heard an ifb preacher say that yeah head injuries what's that concussion walk it off (laughs) Uh, i don't know yeah, I've, I've heard that kind of rhetoric in the IFB for sure. Yeah, so I guess like what I'm getting at, though, we've talked a lot on this show about the terrible ways in which the IFB treats women. But as we all know, 
Uh, toxic masculinity is something that has a very negative effect on men as well. And I wanted to know your observations on how that relates to the IFB. So what I see in this is that emotion control is a tactic that cults use, and it gets laid on really thick for both men and women in the IFB. And of course, I'm using binary language because that's what they see and what they use. But this emotion control is applied very differently based on someone's assigned gender at birth. I want to take like half a step back and point out that the IFB believes that men and women are fundamentally different. And I know this isn't a novel point of view. I think most Christians believe that there are some fundamental differences between men and women other than biological differences. Even pretty lax evangelicals who practice some kind of really soft complementarianism would say, oh, well, some things are undeniable. Men have bigger muscles and are therefore more suited to building things. And also women have a, a nurturing spirit and are just meant to be mothers. That's a core belief for a lot of people, though, not just Christians. And to relate it to something we talked about recently, that's like that's part of like the design principle for the IBLP, right? That's what that is. God gave you a certain, mm -hmm. yeah, immutable characteristics, and uh, because He expects certain things from you, right? And plenty of people, even non-Christian people, believe that there are gender-based differences that go beyond the basic biology of you have or don't have whatever body part. So obviously, in the IF. Be. That's not great if you're transgender, but let's say you happen to be lucky enough to be a cisgendered straight man, which means that the IFB teachings are generally to your advantage, at least as opposed to women. What kind of messaging are you getting? So before I answer that question, I do want to point out that this also affects people who are just gender non-conforming, even if they're not necessarily transgender or non-binary people. Like, I don't identify as trans, but I also never fit at all into the gender roles that were assigned me by the IFB. So this is exponentially more harmful to trans people, but there is collateral damage to anybody who's gender non-conforming. So I can only speak to what was said in public spaces about men. When we have our guest on in a few weeks, we're going to talk about what was said in men-only spaces. But some of the messages that I heard in general about men were that men are visual sexual beings. Men think about sex every seven seconds. They are full of lust naturally. And of course, it's a woman's responsibility to prevent that as much as possible with her dress and behavior. I heard that married men need sex every two to three days or they become fully incapable of rational thought. <laughs> but women are the irrational ones, right? I heard that men have all of this pressure on them because they are leaders of the home. It's a lot for them to handle. And because of that, it's the duty of women, all women, but especially wives, to make their lives as easy as possible and shoulder as much of the burden as possible so that they can focus on their manly man jobs and duties. I was also taught that when men show anger problems, like if they lash out or blow up, that it was just godly anger, righteous anger, and that it was misdirected, not a negative emotion, but a misdirected emotion. The one tiny positive that I can say about what I was taught about masculinity in the IFB, I do remember preaching that if a man hits his wife, that it's a sin, that men are supposed to protect women. Mm. That gets turned misogynistic real quick, but, <laughs> but at least they told you not to hit your wife. So how often would you hear that preached about? So something from this broad group of concepts that I just ran down, I wouldn't say I heard it 
weekly. Like it wasn't a scheduled thing that you, that would come up in every message. But I also don't feel like saying about once a week would be overkill. So if you, okay, think about my high school years. I would hear three sermons a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, plus at least two school chapel services per week, two Bible classes in school per week, Sunday school, a sermon in youth group before Sunday night church, and a sermon before soul winning time on Saturday. So I was hearing some kind of sermon or Bible lesson with three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, like nine or 10 times a week. In addition to if I listened to any sermons, like recorded sermons for fun, which is a thing that I used to do. <laughs> because like a, a sermon at Baptist is like what, two hours long? It's like the same length as like a podcast episode and you're going to run out of stuff to talk about. So you're going to repeat your your topics, your concepts. Yeah, a typical sermon could be around an hour, maybe a little shorter on Sunday morning, maybe a little longer on Sunday night. But yeah, I was hearing like 10 hours of preaching or teaching a week, if not more. So to say that some part of this concept came up about once every week or so doesn't seem out of line for me. You're just, you're hearing that just like men are just horny all the time. Yeah, it boils down to men are horny, fragile, and angry. Wow. And women are <laughs> responsible. <laughs> and women are responsible for managing and directing all of these emotions without ever, ever complaining or actually telling the man what to do. It's just bonk, you know. <laughs> they're like telling you that all men are like perpetually 13 years old. Like they're having trouble with their like erections in the classroom. Like that, that's what they're telling you. I mean, that's how men are treated in the IFB. If you, I think if you look at Jack Hiles, this makes so much sense. A lot of IFB leaders very much seem like insecure 13 year old boys with anger issues. And instead of going to therapy, <laughs> they've built a cult to cater to that. Wow. I mean, that makes so much it, it makes so much sense hearing this because this is the teaching that he's also using to excuse his horrible son's horrible crimes and, and wrongdoings. That's how they balance making men in charge of everything while still allowing men to not take responsibility for anything that they do. Man. That's what they hang all of this on. It's like God has ordained men to be the leaders of everything. God has ordained men to be the leaders of the family and the church and everything you do. But men are also men are also tempted by these sins. So they really can't be held responsible when they do terrible things. So that's how that's how I feel like a lot of people ask that question, like, how can they infantilize men so much, but also make men in charge of everything? And that's how they explain it. I do want to talk specifically about anger because this is something I saw addressed a lot directed at men in the IFB. And this is something that affected me a lot. It was kind of a given that all men or most men struggle with anger issues. It was seen as very normal for a man to lose his temper, throw things, punch walls, that kind of thing. It wasn't encouraged for men to do that kind of behavior. It was encouraged that men learn self-control and not lose their temper like that. But to have that kind of explosive temper was seen as very normal. It's just a man thing, like eating steak or wanting to shoot guns or not wanting to go to Target with your wife. <laughs> it was that normalized that most men have a lot of anger. Now, I don't know if this will surprise you or not, because I'm not really sure how much you've seen of this, but I have a pretty fiery temper. I don't get mad 
very often. I don't lose it very often. I get really mad, like to the point of losing my temper so rarely. I can tell you the two exact dates in the last four years that I've lost my temper. Well, I've seen you get angry about stuff before, but never just like fly off the handle. Right. I'm very I'm very good at not flying off the handle. I can't do much about having a big temper, but I do everything I can to have a very long fuse. I feel like you've seen me get maybe halfway through my fuse before. Yeah. Whenever like or somebody famous says something uh, about transgender people. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like if someone says something backhanded or biphobic or whatever toward me, it's more of an eye roll situation. Like I might get peeved. I might get annoyed. But when people use dangerous rhetoric about others, by which I mean words that have the real the real life effect of people getting hurt or getting killed, words that get my friends beat up, that's, that's when I really get a lot more upset than if anybody said anything about me. Yeah. So as we've talked about on the show, uh, emotion control, define factor of cults. It's one of the like the core four pillars of, of the bite model. So there are certain instances, uh, as you're saying, so there are, there are certain instances where anger is valid and others where anger is automatically invalid. Is that is that right? Not quite, because I I don't think I ever saw male anger treated as invalid. I think the message that I got was more male anger is always valid because being angry is part of being a man. Now that I'm thinking about it, the IFB really told us that it was normal for a man to spend much of his time in a state of low-key anger. Like the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, I, I had the impression that that most or many men are just simmering with rage just like under the surface all the time, or at least most of the time. Wow. I think this ties in as well with the concept of all men being potential rapists, like the idea that all men are just sitting on a huge amount of sexual aggression all the time. What we were taught is that Yes, ultimately, it is the man's job to control these feelings of violence, control the sexually aggressive, sexually violent feelings. But there's also the double standard that if you're a woman or a child and you run afoul of a man and he treats you violently, either physically, verbally, or sexually, that it's at least 50% your fault because all men have these extreme feelings that are almost uncontrollable. It's like, yeah, he pulled the trigger, but you stood in front of the gun. So to answer your question, anger, uh, if a man expressed anger about the Muslims taking over the world or anger over seeing a woman in a short skirt and how dare she tempt me or anger over evolution and sex ed being taught in schools, it wasn't seen as more valid than him expressing anger because his sports team lost or because somebody parked too close to him in the parking lot. The only difference in how righteous or non-righteous anger was treated is that men were very much given free reign on expressing the righteous anger. The non-righteous anger was supposed to be much more subdued in how it was expressed. So no no one would blink twice about a man yelling at the top of his lungs or throwing a table, throwing a pulpit, shaking his fist at someone over anything that might be considered to be righteous anger. If a man did that over a lesser matter like sports or traffic, it would be, oh, he needs to control his anger. But there's no concept of him needing to be less angry or manage his emotions or become more emotionally healthy and learn to cope with the anger that is a normal human emotion because that doesn't, you know, like emotional health, mental health doesn't exist for men. So, 
So I think the messaging that I picked up was that anger is the default. It's just situationally he's expected to express it or not express it. Yeah, so I definitely triggered myself with all of that. Yeah, Dinah's got that uh, that <laughs> bingo card <laughs> filled out. Woo! Yeah, like, ah. it, so you get the, the, the impression that all men are like that, and it leads to a lot of fear of men. Like, my number one worst PTSD trigger is if a man shouts, not even at me, just a male yelling voice or a yelling voice that sounds masculine. Yeah, I think you told me that, like, one of the first times you ever hung out. Yeah, I, I think I did because I was not, um, like, I've done a lot of growing since we've known each other. But back then, I was like, just don't, I was in a really stressful work situation. So I was kind of on edge and I was like, just don't yell. Okay. Because well, I was worried yeah. I would get in the car with you to drive to work because you used to drive me to work sometimes. I was worried that I'd get in the car with you to drive me to work and that you'd yell at another driver or something. And that I'd end up bailing out of the moving car in the middle of a panic attack. <laughs> and of course, you're not that kind of driver at all. But no, I didn't know I, that. I very rarely, yeah, like I, I can't think of, like I, I'm not a yelly person. I'm I don't think I've ever person. heard you shout. No, except like at Formula One races. <laughs> if if uh, the stewards make a bad decision uh, about something, then I become deeply enraged about it. They, they, they really need to get some consistency going there. I'm sorry. Uh, obviously, though, the the things that they're ta- that they're teaching to um to men, I don't need to say this. They're very unhealthy. But here's a question: Do you think this is more of a situation where male pastors are creating an environment in which men don't have to be responsible for their actions? Or is it a situation where anger is being intentionally fomented and weaponized as its own form of emotion control? Hmm. Because, like, I I know we've talked about like emotion control before, especially you know with your experience uh, with you know toxic positivity, uh, negative emotions or a negative spirit which is not of God. I'm wondering if there's situations where negative emotions can intentionally be encouraged in order to keep people more controlled that's an angle that i wouldn't have thought of here because what i see is slightly different but also that could totally be correct what i see is men who are forced into an impossible position men who are told you have to provide for your family and you have to make enough money that your wife can be a stay-at-home mom. But also, you have to tithe, you have to give offerings, give to missionaries, and send your kids to the Christian school from the church. You can't take any overtime at work on Wednesday night or Sunday night, and you have to read the Bible to your kids, and you have to keep on having more kids, and you have to come to soul winning on Saturday. And after all that, you're going to show up to church on Sunday so like Sunday morning, maybe get to go home and have lunch, come back on Sunday night. You got to get through the sermon and then the choir practice. And then you can go home and you can choose between watching the football game or getting a few hours of sleep before you have to go back to work on Monday morning to do it all over again. And then during that Sunday night service, when you just want to go home and watch football, the, ba- the pastor gets up and yells about how you're not doing enough for God or you're not giving enough money or you're not going so winning enough. I feel like that would make just about any human being start to boil a little bit. And that resentment toward the pastor is now a sin. <laughs> so the pastor has told you that if you feel resentment toward him, then that is because you're rejecting God's message. And if you go home after church and say anything bad about the pastor, that's a big sin. So it gets 
boil, like it gets all bottled up and it's just going to fester. And pretty soon you've got a very angry, resentful man. And I feel like small things are going to cause that person to explode. Because as as much as I want to be like the super feminist and recognize that men are very much the privileged class in the IFB, I also have to have some compassion and see that like men are people and rank and file men who are not leaders in the IFB don't get dealt a good hand just because they get dealt maybe a slightly less hand than the women. So so anger towards the pastor, that's got to be redirected. So who's that going to be redirected against? The sinful society? Uh, like, I can imagine that one of the really effective ways, like, I know we've talked about, like, this doctrine of, so- of separation, that you've got to separate yourself from a sinful society. That's got to be a really effective way to do that, because, you know, you're out here, you know, doing all this stuff for God. You need to be doing more, and society is still, it's, it's still getting mm. worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, and all of these sinful things, you know, like... Like the LGBT people um, and and the sex on the TV and all of that stuff, it's getting more and more and more prevalent, not less prevalent. I do think that that anger was supposed to be directed against sinful society. It also did get directed a lot towards the wife and kids. Ugh. I think maybe it depends on how good that man is at channeling that anger. Is he going to channel it into trying to be more godly, into trying to follow the IFB more closely, or is he going to crack under this pressure and take it out on those close to him? I know that channeling anger into greater and greater self-control is something that I did. Like, the angrier I got, the more tightly I would control every word and every action, almost like out of spite. Like, you're holding me to impossible expectations. Well, you i'm gonna try to meet your impossible expectations it turned into like a malicious a very unhealthy malicious compliance thing that's horrible that's like you're just twisted up inside just it was it was very cool i think that um undoing negative spiritual messages like about hell and that sort of thing was hard but this was probably harder for me because it was years and years of conditioning my internal life and my self-talk um into an extremely unhealthy way. Well, like I think one of the things that we've talked about, and this is really the important thing that that people need to understand, is that it's not just that other people are policing you. Uh, it, part of being a cult, it's that you're policing yourself. That's that's right. really and, where the, the 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 line is. Right, and emotion control and thought control are all based on that self policing or self brainwashing. So this is essentially like a, a radicalization technique where you're taking men. And like, I, I know that a lot of people are like, oh, men are trash and men are, men are this, men are that. Um, and you're valid if you feel that way. But there's a lot of men who have essentially be, like who would not be horrible or would not be abusers otherwise. And they've essentially just been radicalized mm-hmm. into into becoming like abusers or, or just angry and just, you know, not knowing what to do. Yeah. And so I feel okay about saying this because this is a hypothetical because you don't currently have a wife. No. Um, Hopefully one day. I do want that for you. But I want that for me, too. But what do you think is more likely you as you are right now beating your wife or you but transplanted into growing up in the IFB beating your wife? Uh, Definitely IFB. I would never do that like me now. Like. Right. Absolutely not. But I'm not saying would you or wouldn't you, but would it be more likely for you to do that behavior if you had grown up in the IFB and if you had this kind of radicalization applied to you? 
Well, yeah. I mean, if I was taught, you know, your your anger is is not something you ever need to control, um, and the way that it affects other people is not something that you're responsible for. Yeah, like, you are uh, you are very much a nonviolent person, but I think that if you were transplanted into this world, that might not be the case. Like this is this is, in my opinion, how the IFB creates violent <sighs> men, and then when those men become pastors or become leaders with very little accountability they often enact that violence on other people yeah because they Mm. have too much power and there's no checks and balances and this is this really gets into like my theory because a lot of men there are a lot of men that are not ifb that are trash there are a lot of men that are not ifb that are violent and aggressive but i i always try to balance that with the idea that men are people men are humans and if they get a ter- if they get terrible messaging from the society that they are involved in then that probably makes them a lot more likely to be violent or aggressive people so i, I try to look at this from an ext- from as as balanced of a perspective as i can so i want to circle around to how this teaching on anger affected me because there are two ways that this really stuck with me. The first way I think is maybe more obvious. Um, we And we referenced this earlier. I'm still working on not seeing every man as constantly angry and just looking for an excuse to snap at me. That's how I was conditioned to see the world. And I think this is an important point about trauma and PTSD. I never had a man in the IFB snap and physically harm me. But this concept and other similar related concepts of IFB masculinity caused mental and emotional abuse directed at me. Even though no one ever just snapped and hit me or anything caused physical damage to my body, I saw a lot of men suddenly just get mad and throw a tantrum and demonstrate their physical strength and the strength of their anger, even if it wasn't directed towards me physically. And that really stuck with me. Even the first few times that we hung out, even at your desk, like at work in a public place, I was sitting there looking, like trying to read your face for signs of anger and planning out, okay, if this guy snaps, how am I going to get out of here? But from your experiences, though, that's completely understandable. Yeah, that's just that's how I was told the world was. And it has taken me meeting a lot of nonviolent men to not immediately judge like that when I meet somebody. So like when you were looking at me, you were just like, what's going on with this guy? He's just like not mad about anything. He's just chilling. Well, no, it freaked me out because I couldn't see what you were mad about, which made me think that you were super, super angry all the time and really good at hiding it. (laughs) Which is funny, but also was terrifying. I'm just like, that's so funny. Like, I mean, knowing me, like how often... You, I mean, you've seen. I've me, literally like, never seen you more than like miffed. Yeah. Like if anger is a scale of one one to ten, you've probably seen me at a solid five. But I've never seen you get past like a two and a half. I mean, granted, like when I get mad about a lot of things, I often just like I I don't show it. But that's like that's just me personally. Like it's I I don't know. Maybe I just like like to express that in, in other ways. I do a lot of lifting now so i think maybe since i do a lot of lifting and i do a lot of like exercise that's a good way for me to to channel anger yeah that I have you know into- coping with like, every every human person feels anger but like coping with it in a way that is constructive and makes you feel better right the other thing I want to talk about, though, about how this stuck with me is how I deal with feeling anger myself 
because the message that I got from the IFB was that women don't really feel anger in the same way that men do. Women feel frustration. They feel a spirit of complaining. They feel a spirit of negativity. Women are expected to repress any negative emotions so far down that I very rarely saw women expressing anger at all, maybe just like severe disappointment. Of course, I didn't see women yell or demonstrate anger physically like men did. But I I don't remember women expressing even like in a very calm, like, I am angry about this. I didn't see that very often. I knew woman I knew one woman who did have anger and like blow up similar to how a man might in the IFB and she was very much looked down on for that. I knew one other woman who expressed anger in a very reserved, very calm way and she wasn't told that she was sinning, but she was definitely looked at as a bit of a rebel. Mm. Which is ironic because as time went on, the first woman in who did blow up with anger left the IFB and it seems like she's a lot less angry now and the second one became more and more IFB as time went on so I I don't even I don't know what to think about that but women are in the IFB are supposed to be angry about certain things like the wicked state of the world or like social or political issues but they're not really supposed to be angry about things in their daily lives and they're definitely not supposed to express it so do you think that it's harder to learn to let yourself feel emotions than it is to learn to control something like an explosive temper i don't ever remember learning to control my temper because it was expected of me from such a young age Mm. So I remember even being like eight or nine years old, feeling rage, like blind rage, like vision goes white, heart pounding in my ears, couldn't breathe, anger, and having to control that and figure out how to just shut down and not act out. I was also getting these messages that because... I am a girl child. That emotion that I'm feeling is nothing compared to a man's anger. So no matter how strong my emotion is, it is less powerful than a man's anger. I cannot, I'm not capable of feeling the full extent of that. So I was told like, that is such a weird thing to try to even describe. It's like if I told you, well, Because you're a man, you can't feel love. So no matter how much you think you love your parents, you don't love your parents as much as you as I love mine. Because I am more capable of feeling that emotion. Wow, that's that's like such a such a bull thing to say. Yeah, the equivalent. Wow, huh? Yeah. So as a kid, a lot of times controlling anger looked like just freezing in place, physically shutting down, even like even just like finding a place to sit and sit completely still, stare at a wall and see if I could like not breathe, not blink, just completely sit still, which is how I inadvertently learned how to meditate. <laughs> <laughs> accidentally <laughs> and then i thought i invented it <laughs> and then only and only when i grew up did i realize that other people do that sadie is a true guru um. <laughs> it was one of one of many times that i thought i invented something and then somebody else um it turned out that like half the world has been doing this forever have you ever mixed peanut butter and chocolate i have <laughs> the first <laughs> it was like that so yeah. so then as a teenager as i got better at controlling this it looked more like emotionally shutting down so 
I accidentally invented meditation and figured out that I could just like shut down my thoughts and then follow along with whatever I was supposed to be doing and like perfectly comply with whatever I was supposed to be doing. And it was like being a robot. So I so I can't answer your question of like what is harder letting yourself learn to feel emotions or learning to control it because I don't re- I only remember doing one of those two things. I don't remember learning to control it because it was always a part of my life. So I I'm I'm sort of formulating a hypothesis here because so letting yourself feel something there's going to be guilt, there's going to be shame, there's going to be all of that involved. Um and you know you know this because you, you know you've gone through deconstruction. But in the end you have a wider range of emotions that are available to you whereas so like say you're a man and you've got this blind rage and you have to learn to control that when you get out there is at least on the surface a bit of like a loss of freedom that people aren't used to or at least that you're being told that there's something that you shouldn't indulge in anymore i don't know I'm, I'm trying to figure out why maybe it's easier for some people to decide to deconstruct than others like if because you know i've noticed that like at least a lot of the people that we talk about um or that we talk to more of them seem to be women than seem to be men um i think it's hmm. yeah <clears throat> i think yeah i think what you're saying is that for women who leave or people you know AFAB people, people who are socialized as women, who leave the IFB, there is a gain of freedom. But yeah. for men, AMAP people, whatever, who leave the IFB, there can feel like a loss of freedom. At least initially. Well, At least like, because, yeah. It's like the whole, it's like, it's like Joe Rogan, um, you know, oh, eventually white straight men aren't going to be allowed to talk anymore. Like that whole concept of like, I feel like I'm losing the freedom to say this racial slur, or I feel like I'm losing the freedom to say this misogynistic joke. I feel like I'm losing the freedom to be what I've always been and like how we need to deal with that perceived loss of freedom that some people are experiencing right now as culture shifts. I think that that is very intense and very sped up for men who leave a oppressive religious environment where they are the highest class of people. And I like and I do think I do think that's to an extent that's valid. It's not that we can just let people think that forever, but if somebody thinks that for a brief time on their way out, I'm I'm not going to be super mad about that. That's something that people need to go through. The key word is going through, not just going into. It's a process. It it's is. all a process, yeah. See, I always wonder, on the flip side of that coin, I always wonder if I come across a little too chaotic now. Hmm. I worry that people take me less seriously because I may come across as somebody who doesn't have a lot of self-control. But also, I don't know if that is an accurate perception of how people see me or if that is just because I went from a life of such intense internal and external controls that from there to where I am now is a huge difference. So I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. (laughs) But allowing myself to be uncontrolled or be less controlled and to feel that and cope with that was not easy. I would not say that I do or ever have perceived you as somebody who was not in control. Oh, good. Even, Thank yeah, you. Like, you know, even when I when I first met you, you, you when we were working together at that car dealership, you, you always seemed like, I, I don't want to say, because a lot of people, you know, have the appearance of having it together when they really don't. But you always seemed fairly sure of yourself, even when, you know, you would come to me and you'd like complain about 
that like coworkers were doing and, you know, people were undermining you or, or treating you poorly. It, it, it never seemed like you were like about to fly off the handle about anything. It, it was just like, this is a situation that's really frustrating to me. And I'm, you know, I'm trying this and this and this thing about it, but none of that thing seems to be working. It's more that. See, in my, in yeah. my mind, I felt like I was way too chaotic and like way out of line complaining to you about it. Oh no, we were friends. So you see, know, that's, you that's the conditioning yeah. Yeah. really showing up because to you, that's a total, totally normal coworker interaction, especially with how poorly I was being treated by by one person in particular. It was criminal. I mean, probably. I mean, not, yeah. <laughs> I, sh- I really should have reported that. Shit. Yeah, but um, it wouldn't have done anything. You know who ran that company? They, they. I would have had to report it to like authorities to she, get any mm, to get any like God restitution on that. What but, a but in, like, but to you, yeah. Thank goodness we're self employed now. <laughs> I'm giving you a big virtual high five. Ah. <laughs> but, you know, in, in my mind, that was, I was super out of line. I was like being extremely chaotic. And then to you, that's a very normal interaction to have. So that's, that's I think, very illustrative of the deconstruction that I was still going through even that was like almost exactly two years ago. I mean, of course, you you know me that like when I'm around, like when I'm around other people, it's just like whatever the f- I want to say, I'm going to say, Right. That's true. That sort of thing of somebody somebody being like out of line or somebody being like improper or extra like that doesn't really register with me. It's it's not that I have a lack of self-awareness. It's that I have self-awareness but I just don't care. You have a I was I was literally about to say that. You don't have a lack of self-awareness. You just have a lack of giving a f- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, no it, it's not it's not that you don't notice. It's just that you don't care. Yeah. <laughs> So I think as far as while we're talking about deconstruction, there could also be a factor of being addicted to rage and addicted to anger. So I'm just going to I'm going to say this and I'm not going to fill in between the lines and I'm just going to let you know anybody who, you know, let him who has him who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith to the churches on this one. <laughs> so let's say that you're an adult in the IFB and you've been hyped over like you've been hyped up over all of this stuff, like be angry about abortion, be angry about gay marriage, be angry about Starbucks cups. And and anger is this way that, that the IFB controls people. I think that if a person tries to deconstruct who has been very indoctrinated with that, they can really miss having something to be angry about. They can be so used to that feeling of like my hatred of these things drives my life's like so many of my life's decisions that they feel like if they let go of the hatred of that thing without finding a new thing to hate, that they feel a bit pointless. So they may find something new to make their life about hating, whether it's just a reconstituted version of those same issues or even just holding on to some of those same issues and bringing those with them into their new life or even going the other way and finding like like leftist social issues to be angry about. Yeah, like Sandor Clegane from Game of Thrones. So this is something that I see often and it's not just from christians not just from a uh, fundamentalist religious people but also you see so you know people's posts um 
like on social media on, on Instagram, Facebook, whatever, um, about political issues. And it'll be it'll there'll be issues that people have every right to be angry about, you know, civil rights, the environment, corporate greed, things like that. But the tagline will always be stay angry about this issue, or you know, they want you to forget about, you know, insert evil thing that they're doing here. But then, you know, there's a lot of messaging also on top of that about if you're not as angry as I am about this issue, then you are in some way morally inferior because you're not as compassionate towards the people that are being affected by it. And that's your privilege showing that you have the privilege to not be angry about this all the time. Like It can be an extremely effective tactic to motivate people, but it also, to me, feels really manipulative and definitely an example of emotion control. I have absolutely seen that. And I'm glad that you brought it up because I think you want to strike a balance between feeling too apathetic about these things and just letting impotent anger consume your life, right? Yeah. Like every time I see one of the things that just gets me of this this list of things that we rightfully should be angry about, the one that gets me is when I see a GoFundMe for necessary medical treatment. Oh, I get every time I see one, I get so upset that the United States cannot care for our vulnerable people. And I feel like having a little bit of anger living in me all the time about that isn't incompatible with the healthy emotional life. But I liked what you said about if you're not as angry as I am all the time, then you don't care. Because I do care a lot and I do think about healthcare and inequity in healthcare every day. Your husband works in the healthcare field. Yes. Yeah. Most nights he gets off work and we just have like an hour long fest about how bad the American healthcare system is because he works in state healthcare. He works for the Oregon Health Plan. So that's, that's literally what he does. But also, I don't let my anger about that cloud the time that I have with my baby, or I don't let it keep me from getting the rest that I need to get up and do the things I need to do. Yeah, because like, what's the alternative to that? Like, you, do, this is somebody that I'm, you know, we keep bringing up because it's just so weird. Who's that woman who was brought up by the abortion act, Gianna Jensen, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, where she was brought up by, you know, this woman whose life was basically just surrounded by like anti abortion activism. And then she, like, that's such a, a weird environment. And like, if, if you're, if it's just that all the time, that's such a weird environment to be bringing a kid up in because they, you know, they'll end up with a really, I, I, I don't know how to, to explain that kind of like view of, of the world that you're going to have if your parents are just angry about something going on all the time. Like that's, you know, I, I uh. just tend to think if I was any angrier about this or if I was angry more constantly, if I spent more minutes of my day being angry, would it change anything about my behavior? Like right. if I was any matter about healthcare, or if I spent any more of my time thinking about inequity in healthcare, would that change how I vote? Would that change any of the charitable donations that I make? Would that change how I behave toward friends? And if the answer is no, then I think I'm as angry as I can be about it right now. Well, if, the, if you're not as angry as I am, that, that thing, that's very black and white thinking, isn't it? That's not It healthy. is. We you're right. We don't like to we don't like to encourage that here. And there's a lot of shame that's involved in that too. Like I know people who frequently express shame because they have lived fortunate lives 
And there's, you, you know what I'm saying? Like there was that sort of like shame slash anger combination that can be extremely detrimental to somebody's self-worth or their understanding of like their relationships to other people. I, yeah. And I, that, I don't like there being a shaming ac- aspect attached to this. Oh, but there always unless, is. That's well, unless somebody thing, is yeah. doing something that is actively harmful. And they should know better and they do know better and they're still doing it. And this is interesting for me because I am raising a child who is, will be living a fairly privileged life, even compared to my upbringing. She will have a lot of things that I didn't have. Yeah, well, you grew up in like a trailer on church property. So, yeah. So I'm yeah. like, I'm giving my child things that I didn't have. And I have to think about as. The, you know, she's almost a year old and as time goes by and she learns how to talk and learns concepts and can have conversations about this. How do I enforce to her that not everybody has what she has and that she should work for equality without making her feel ashamed for the things that I am able to give her and my husband and I are able to give her. So that's That's something, this is something that I think a a lot about because of that. Uh, An example of this that I saw recently, I know your feelings about AOC are complicated (laughs) for extremely Mm. valid reasons. Complicated is a way of putting it. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'd I'd be um, generous. To her. (laughs) But I saw a lot of this going on when she tweeted about going on vacation. People were responding to her tweet like, why are you on vacation when people are still dying of COVID? Like, why are you still on vacation when student debt isn't canceled? That's funny. Yeah, I saw that too. I thought it was... um... What I saw was, why are you on vacation in Florida, unmasked at a restaurant when COVID is like rampant there, and you're on Twitter criticizing states that don't have like mask mandates? I'm sure that you're that what you saw because you have you follow different people on Twitter than I do, right? So in the pictures I saw, she was outdoors at a restaurant, not wearing a mask outdoors at a restaurant would have been within the mandates of the strictest states at that point. I do that all the time. Yeah, like but. I'm not I'm not saying that I would have gone on vacation to Florida and not worn a mask at an outdoor oh, restaurant. God. But she was not in line just with Florida's rules. She was in line with the strictest state's rules. So I wasn't about criticizing her for not wearing a mask outside. Absolutely. I'm personally, I'm not going to set foot in Florida for like a good while. I still think that's unfair criticism, especially like she was on vacation. Congress wasn't even in session, was it? No, I don't think so. No, it, it was like over winter break. I swear, like these people who are like eating up this messaging and constantly mad on the internet and just like i I swear like so many of them like they need a dust up on their civics education i swear although then again she did just tweet yesterday uh we need to cancel vacation to vote on bills so (laughs) yeah (laughs) no i think uh, Uh, but back to my point though yeah i think people were expressing this concept like how dare you rest how dare you do anything but be angry uh, yeah and that was that <clears throat> that was the part that i feel like was unfair because i do think that anger is absolutely appropriate over many things that are going on in the world right now but i think we have to recognize that we can't be consumed by anger 100% of the time because that's how you burn out. Well, I think I've said everything that I want to say about anger. Would you like to go take up the offering? And then when we come back, we'll get into toxic masculinity in the IFB. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. So when we come back, what are we going to talk? We're going to talk about uh, purity culture and homophobic bullying. So stay tuned for that. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back. So in the first half of this episode, what did we talk about? We talked about anger and emotion control and how men are taught to express their emotions differently than women. Now we are going to shift gears a little bit. What are we going to talk about in this half? We're going to talk about purity culture and we're going to talk about homophobic bullying. Those are both huge issues, I think, when it comes to toxic masculinity. So, uh, Sadie, when it comes to purity, in your experience, did you see men being given different messaging than women? I'm sure they had to be given different messaging. So I've talked about how uh, there would be split chapel services in high school and at Hiles Anderson and even at church camp, uh, all these different scenarios in which they had all the girls go to one place and all the boys go to another place. And it was all very secretive, at least on our end. It was, don't tell the boys what we learned about in Split Chapel. It's not appropriate for them. In the first Family of Fundamentalism series, I know we've talked about that series quite a bit. You talked about how you were in a service with all ladies and Jack Scott was preaching and he was telling you about all of the things that you have to do to please your your husband. The boys are off uh, presumably with some other pastor getting what, what are they getting told? So that specific sermon was Lady Spectacular. So the the sermon where Jack Scott told all the church ladies to um, how specifically to please their husbands, the sermon where Tom Williams told all the church ladies even more specifics on how to please their husbands. Good Lord, I haven't told that one on the podcast yet. Ooh. Yeah, we'll talk about we'll that. We'll talk about it. Um, <laughs> I, and, I'm and, sure I want to know. I haven't heard this one. And the uh. sermon where Jack Scott talked in depth about teenage girls and lace camisoles. All three of those happened at Lady Spectacular. So the men folks weren't getting preached to that week. You know, the ladies need extra preaching to stay on the right track. Extra brainwashing. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
But as far as split sessions, I don't really know what the men were hearing because we were getting lectured about, you know, don't wear a ring on certain finger because that signals that you're a lesbian and Mm -hmm. skirt lengths and camisoles and how we're all tempting men. I've heard some men who grew up IFB saying they just played basketball or did some kind of fun activity while we were in the meeting. I've heard other men who grew up IFB say that it was basically just a big talk about don't masturbate every time. I'm getting conflicting messages. Well, so yeah, in a couple of months, um, like in two months, we've got uh, an interview lined up with somebody who experienced uh the ifb as a man firsthand and uh this is going to be one of the topics of discussion i believe we should yes i hope hope so we should probably let people know that we are not teasing a joshua harris interview yet but we are extremely excited about the guests that we have coming on and we will announce it as soon as we have a date set up yeah, it's somebody Sadie and I have a lot of respect for. So uh, we're, but we're going to keep today's episode about what you observed and then save that stuff for later. So uh, wh- what did you see being said to the boys? What was their messaging? So one thing that I would really love to talk about is some of the things that I learned from the podcast. I pray you put this journal away. So that's the one that's a about the that, that's done by the guy who grew up with uh, Josh Duggar, right? Yes. So Justin, yeah. the host, grew up in the Duggar circles and was friends with the Duggar family. And there is some hot Duggar tea in that podcast. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of things that I did not know about the mindset of growing up as a boy in the IFB. Like, wh- what would you want to start with? So there were some really interesting things that he said about masculinity in general. And one thing that stood out to me off the bat in the very first episode was him talking about being like 14, 15. And he's writing in his journal about how he wants to grow up and provide for his family. He was a young teenager and he was planning out. He describes it like it was a business plan. This is how I'm going to support my family. This is how I'm going to be the spiritual leader of my wife and children. I want to set high biblical standards for my children. I'm looking for a wife who's going to homeschool. This is how I want my wife to treat me with respect. But I also want to make sure my wife feels respected too, like in her godly gender role as a wife. And I want her to be submissive to me, but I also want to make sure that I love her like Christ loves the church. All of this kind of thing was associated for him with chivalrous masculinity. And he wasn't, you know, being a nasty misogynist in his mind. He was building this fantasy world of living out the principles that he was being taught exactly as he was being taught them. And I was kind of wondering as I listened to that back for like the second or third time to prepare for this episode. How do you feel like you've been a 15 year old boy? I haven't. (laughs) How do you think it would feel to have that kind of pressure on yourself as a teenage boy? As a teenager, that's mind boggling. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that like in, I guess for IFB boys, that's like you read like that's the, the height of, of this man respects women. If, if you're IFB, if yeah, you read giving that, any yeah. thought to her feelings or her feeling respected at all is very progressive for the society that he was in at the time. In, yeah, even, even in a, a situation where she is submissive to him. But yeah, like I said, that's mind boggling to me because when I was 14, 15, you know, I like I wasn't concerned with what I was going to do for a living. I was concerned with, you know, trying to have 
decent enough grades that I could get into a good university. You know, I was worried about whether or not I would get a solo in uh, in in the choir. You know, because I did choir in school. I was concerned with trying to get a good like role or get onto the varsity mock trial team. Uh, you know, trying to figure like I was wondering like how do I get girls to like me? Because like I had like fourteen, fifteen. I had no fucking idea. And I don't know if I've shown you pictures of what I looked like when I was 14 or 15. I was not like very fashionable. I was not very cool. Like getting married, like thinking about like what my wife would be and like what I want, like I wanted to be a rock star. Okay. I wasn't concerned with like getting married. I wanted to be a rock star. That was my, my goal, my dream. So you weren't so, like you weren't like obsessing over supporting a family or what biblical standards you would set for your children. No, 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 no. Like that's nuts. So this is what Justin was writing in his journal. It wasn't like he was trying to impress anyone. He wasn't trying to front. This is really what was going through his mind. This is what he was obsessed with as a teenager. So question. Yes. Is this to do with the whole adultification of children? Like you talked about parentification, Mm -hmm. but also like the adultification, which I guess is like a a facet of that. Uh, Because now, like I'm in my late 20s and I'm thinking, huh, I wonder when I'm going to get married. No, like this guy's thinking this at 15. Yes, I, I think it did have to do with that. A lot of boys that I grew up with in the IFB, I think we're doing very adult types of labor as well. And we talk about this all the time happening with girls, right? You just referenced parentification. IFB girls raise children and cook and do other things that they're going to be expected to do when they grow up to be wives with children. IFB boys, though, are also expected to do like manual labor a good bit. It's pretty common. Um, They might do heavy labor for the church, like roofing. By the way, I always wanted to help with roofing. And I wasn't allowed to. It made me sad. <laughs> if they're like other, another thing an IFB boy might do, if their dad is a manual laborer, like if their dad is a plumber or an electrician or a contractor, they might work with their dad under the table as a teenager. And like I've said before, it's not bad for a teenager to learn to do grown up types of labor. But like I've talked about before, it goes way overboard for girls. And I think to an extent, it does the same for boys. So that's that's something that is referenced a lot, I think, in I Pray You Put This Journal Away. Boys are, are expected to put in this kind of work and be very sober, very calculating about their future. Of course, there is also a lot of, I don't know, I hate to phrase it this way, but like good old-fashioned classic toxic masculinity <laughs> applied to boys in the IFB. I think in our culture, most assigned male at birth people experience things being said to them like, boys don't cry. You throw like a girl. A gay being used as an insult, being forced yep. away from any clothing or hobby or intre- interest that's deemed feminine. Like all of that general stuff. In the IFB, I think it's not just something that boys experience. It's more the fabric of their lives. It's just everywhere and sermons about be a man are really common too. I think that boys are told to be men and act like adults from a very young age. And even more than girls in some ways are expected to be little adults by like 15 or 16 years old. I think girls are expected to be adult in responsibilities like caring for children and being responsible for managing men's emotions like we talked about earlier. I think that boys are expected to be adults physically and boys are also really discouraged from like teenage horseplay 
they're discouraged from acting mm-hmm. like boys. They're meant to act more like men once they hit their mid-teens, comporting and carrying themselves physically like a grown-up. Interesting. Huh. So, and, and girls aren't really expected that. Girls are not expected to dress like grown-ups until at least late teens, like 17, 18. Boys are expected to dress almost like a carbon copy of a grown-up at like 12 or 13. So you would definitely see what I'm saying is that you would absolutely see an IFB boy in khaki pants, New Balance sneakers, a polo, a striped polo shirt and like a cell phone clip on his belt. What? Yeah. What? Yes. Yeah. Um, like no like way. now you can go into any IFB church and see a teenager dressed like that. Cell phone belt clip. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. That's. Wow. And and IFB girls would still be dressing in a much more juvenile way at that age. Like in my in my I'm... school growing up, um boys had to wear ties to class starting at 12 or or 7th grade. Aren't you glad you didn't have to go to middle school wearing a tie? <laughs> yes, I'm very glad I didn't have to go to middle school wearing a tie. Uh middle school was not fun for me. Actually, I don't think it was fun for anyone. But, but at yeah. least you didn't have to wear a tie. So if you'll bear with me since we're coming up on Valentine's Day and all, I want to do a little bit of <laughs> romantic uh relationship self therapy. <laughs> people tell me all the time that our podcast helped them put in perspective things that they had gone through and like it turned a light bulb on in their brain about something and it was really odd to have that same experience with someone else's podcast but on i pray you put this journal away justin talked about looking for a wife and he talked about his teenage crush on Jana duggar and he said that he was really attracted to her Actually, okay, do you want to guess why he said that she that he was attracted to her? Like, what was the main thing, do you think, that attracted him to his teenage crush? I don't know. That she was pretty. I, I don't know. He was interested in her because she was quiet. She was quiet? She was quiet. She had a meek and quiet spirit, and she was almost too shy to speak to anyone. Mm. And that's what it, that was what was attractive to an IFB boy. So when mm. I was a teenager, this just this just blew my mind. So confusing. Because when I was a teenager, I was interested in guys like Justin was as a teenager. I wanted to date the kind of guys that were seriously thinking about how they wanted to provide for a family. I wanted to date the guys that were like weirdly adult, acting like 15-year-old like adult men with their suits and ties and their sober, thoughtful conversations, like learning an industry, learning a trade, journaling about Jesus. That was the kind of guy, that was like the cream of the crop, best of the best, IFB future preacher boy. That was very much like the type of guy that I really wanted to date as a teenager. I don't know if you want to get into this, but is this to do with what you thought it was okay or like permissible for you to be attracted to? Yeah, I think that this was kind of what I was conditioned to want because you also have to remember that visual attraction was not supposed to be anywhere in like my top five or six priorities. That was supposed to be way down the list. It's like, oh, yeah, and he's also cute. So I was I was thinking of people I wanted to date as like character traits and then kind of retconning it to make sure that they were also cute in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll send you a picture of my high school crush and then you'll get it. No, you showed me a picture the other day. Oh, right. I did. I did. We, yeah, he's a decent looking fellow. So I knew once I dated somebody, I would get married. And that was the other part of it. I didn't want to be married to some podunk like evangelist or something. I didn't have that. I didn't want to end up with some guy like Timothy Rodriguez, honestly. (laughs) 
you be the next J-Rod. I That's who you're going to be. I really did not want to be the next J-Rod. Um, I wanted to end up with a guy who Pushing was going to... Like, I really wanted to end up with a guy who was like some famous pastor's son or had some serious fundy street cred and was going to end up pastoring a big church. And it wasn't so that I could be like rich or famous, but it was more just because I didn't want to be poor anymore. And I didn't want to feel ineffective. Like I felt like I've talked about it so many times, like my feelings of guilt and shame and self-hatred because I couldn't get enough people to come to church with me. I wanted to be a part of a big church and be on staff at a big church so that I could feel like I was doing something and get rid of those negative feelings. So I wanted to marry a guy like I've been describing because that's who gets hired at big churches that actually pay you. (laughs) So I knew that my future was already pretty set in stone. My future was going to be get married, husband works for a church, have kids, either stay at home or teach in a Christian school, go to church a lot, go soul winning for the rest of my life. That was kind that was not really negotiable. Mm. So I my my only bit of choice there was was who I was going to marry. And I felt like I needed to get with a really sharp preacher boy. Like I needed the guy with the nicest haircut and the nicest suit, the guy who's going to get hired by a big church who's got a lot of talents and abilities because I I'm already going to be doing all of these things that I want to do it in a decent house with a car that's not falling apart. That's that's so funny that you're like you're you're like a teenager and you're not being like, oh, I like Johnny. He's the quarterback on the football team. And he's so so." no, it's like I like uh, brother Jeremy because he's I don't know, because he is sober of mind and uh No, no, and holy of spirit. I don't know. But like, I needed a guy who was like, who had like preacher boy talents and who like looked the part because I needed a guy who was going to get hired at a big church. Yeah. So it wasn't. Provide for me. I'm 15. Like, provide for me (laughs) and our eight children (laughs) that I've already named. I don't know. I think like regular regular high school is is who's going to ask me to the prom or kiss me by my locker. I don't know. And <laughs> IFB high school age is like I need to pick out like eight baby names that sound good with my crush's last name. Wow. But I got That's so creepy. But I got really That's- frustrated growing up because this type of guy that I've been talking about wasn't into me. And this was so hard for me. Oh, I'm sorry. That that's rough. No, why? So why do you think that they weren't into you? Was it because, like you said before, that like you weren't a tier at Hiles Anderson because your dad's church wasn't big enough? Is, did that have anything to do with it, or, or was it like? I don't. No, I don't think so. I, I think. Well, at the time, I thought it was because I wasn't pretty enough or I wasn't thin enough because that is the reaction that high school girls have. So I went through a lot of steps trying to become more attractive to that kind of guy. I worked really hard to try to meld myself physically into what I thought that kind of guy wanted. And I really couldn't, I couldn't figure out why it wasn't working. Like my dad was a pastor. I knew the Bible. I could teach Sunday school. I could play piano. I was doing everything I could think of to be the person that I thought I was supposed to be to attract the person that I thought I was going to marry. But now that I've heard, I pray you put this journal away, I realized the reason that those guys weren't interested in me, it was I wasn't quiet enough. I was... I was like too forward because Justin in that podcast, he talks about, you know, I know of this type of girl who goes and talks to boys without being properly introduced. And I think she is just 
so flirtatious and no decent man would want to get with a girl like that. And it just it was just like a light bulb in my head. It's like I wasn't quiet enough. So that wasn't going to happen. It, and now that I think about it, this so tracks. <laughs> it's not your it's not your body they weren't going for. It was your personality. <laughs> <laughs> it's my personality. That's way worse, but also like no, <laughs> it totally makes sense. And the, the thing is that I would they don't know what they are missing. <laughs> Well, and, and that just, it, it was like a weight off my shoulders because, oh, that's why I wasn't good enough for them. Well, oh, okay. Like yeah. I can, that, I can accept that. I don't know. It was, it was like, it was like years and years of rejection just lifted off of me. You know what they said? Uh, you know what Lizzo said in that song? You could have had a bad. <laughs> <laughs> Accurate. I think it's so funny. Guys don't like me. I'm not quiet enough. I'm just like, there's nothing you can fucking do about that. <laughs> So, like, Justin from that podcast, he really reminds me of some of the guys that I had crushes on in high school. And I just, anyway, it just made me feel like I could let a lot of that rejection and hurt go because it made sense, finally. Like, if Justin had the idea that what's attractive is a quiet, meek, shy kind of person, my crushes probably had that same idea, too. And, like, no wonder they weren't interested in me because I am clearly not that personality type. (laughs) No. I did really try. (laughs) Thank you. I did really try to force myself to be meek and quiet. I remember people in the church were always on my case about approaching boys my age to talk to them. I was told that if they came to talk to me, it was okay, but I wasn't supposed to approach them. Which, by the way, that was f***ing miserable. Like, But knowing me now, I think you can see why this wasn't working for me. I tried really, really hard to force myself into that box. But every once in a while, I just couldn't contain myself. And I would go have like an hour long conversation with a boy. You know, that feels great to like talk to somebody. Not even like a boy I had a crush on, not even like a romantic thing, but literally just like talking to somebody and connecting with somebody. I was so lonely. I would get like over it because like, you know how I am. I'm constantly talking to somebody all the time. But like I have I have tons and tons of internet friends. I mean, like Heather has become Heather Heath has become my really good friend. Dinah has become my really good friend. And Dinah put me into a really fun group chat with other moms that we I have a lot of similarities to. And I'm in there all day when Chuck isn't going crazy, like talking about, oh, what did, what crazy thing did your baby do today? I just I thrive on socialization and being trying to deny myself that just was so hard. That's torture. It was so hard and I was so lonely. And also it's the IFB, so you're not supposed to be intimate, like like emotionally intimate with anybody. So what, you get in trouble for it? Yeah. I would get I would get not trouble, trouble, but I would get reprimanded, like, um, you know, Sadie, I saw you talking to so and so after church. And if people see you talking to young men like that, everybody's gonna think that you're forward. Everybody's going to think that you're promiscuous and you really shouldn't do that. No, you you know what this reminds me of? This this makes me think of so from time to time, and this is something I've seen from watching various IFB sermons, you know, that 
I have to watch or, or listen to over the course of uh, of doing research for the show. From time to time, you will hear the pastor say from the pulpit, I have been married to my wife for 28 years, and I have never been in a fight with my wife, not in 28 years that we have been married. The Lord has blessed me with a harmonious marriage because we are good Christians. She is a good Christian wife. I have a good Christian husband. We have never been in a fight, not once. Like That's something that you, you will hear from time to time if a pastor is like, especially a pastor who is like renowned for marriage teaching or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting here watching this like, that's not a good thing that you've never been in a fight. Yeah, that probably just means that when there's a problem, your wife goes behind the scenes to make it better, or she just deals with her problem instead of asking you for help. You know, she just doesn't feel like she can talk to you about it. I don't know. That's really isolating. But that's like the same sort of thing where, you know, you're not allowed to that level of emotional intimacy. Yeah, well, like like Jack Hyle's book where he talked about not even seeking emotional intimacy with his wife. Hmm. Of course, he might have had it with somebody else. Yeah. Oh, God, what a creep. So in sermons, you're hearing the pastor talk. What What are you hearing the pastor say that men should be looking for in a wife? Is, is it sort of like in line with this? So I'm searching through my memory and I'm really thinking that a lot of this what to look for in a wife stuff was maybe in split sessions like church ed, Hiles Anderson, that sort of thing. What I do remember hearing a lot is Jack Scott's dumb, gross thing about loves to snuggle. And like, that's why he wanted to date Jack Hiles daughter. Wait, what's that? Loves to snuggle? We talked about this when we did um, Dating with a Porpoise. Oh. A lot of preachers, what I heard in public spaces where a lot of preachers talking about how they got with their wife and like what they noticed about their wife before they got married. And a lot of it is going to be like she had a really submissive spirit or she was really meek and quiet and she was very studious. She kept her head down. She didn't talk much. She loved her bus kids. Like that's the kind of thing that you would hear about what these boys are looking for in a wife. Jack Scop was always talking about marriage anyway because he he was like the expert in marriage like so much so that he like wrote the whole book about it yeah he well he wrote multiple books on marriage he we just mostly know about the really gross one yeah we've actually uh got a review of one of his other books coming up uh the one that's about mental health it's called healing for the inner hurt uh so that's gonna be fun that's coming up like next month i think jack scott was such an expert on marriage that he ruined a few other people's marriages <laughs> with terrible counseling and then he torpedoed his own marriage like unbeatable levels of destruction yeah so much so that he got sent <laughs> to jail right yeah he's in jail <laughs> i did have a guy at hiles anderson inform me that he was going to be the next jack scop i looked him up on facebook recently and he isn't the pastor of a mega church yet but i guess we'll see is he in jail too no he's like 30 <laughs> and he's not married so by this time in his story arc he should have a wife and be working for hiles anderson but he's a little behind he should have like two kids at least by now three kids jack scop only that's, had two okay mm-hmm. well he, sh- he should he should have kids by now that's the yeah. that's the the thing he's unmarried man he must not be the next jack scop if he was the next uh pastor of that level then he i mean he would have found somebody by now you know yeah 
Oh, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you about that guy at a, at a later time. I have some stories. Ugh. But anyway, other than being as similar to Jack Scott's wife as possible, the other thing I really remember boys being told to look for in a wife was that she loves the Lord. So in Fundy speak, that means that she spends a lot of time reading the Bible, praying. She writes down things she learns from the Bible. She pays a lot of attention in church. She cries at the altar call. Is really emotional about Jesus. And I tried really hard to be that too. And I don't. I don't know. I know we're here to talk about masculinity, but I'm doing a lot of self-therapy right now about how <laughs> I repressed every part of my natural personality to try to catch a fundy man train out of poverty. I, I know that's not the topic here, but I think it, <laughs> I feel like it took me so long to figure this out and figure out who I was outside of that. And I do think there's a tie-in. I hope there's a tie-in. <laughs> I think there's a tie-in here. Let, let me Let me get the tie-in. It's men will literally write a terrible book about marriage and then cheat on their wife by uh, being a pedophile instead of going to therapy. There we go. Tied it back yeah. to masculinity. <clears throat> Bam. But getting one of those men <sighs> is the only goal of your life and the only way to advance yourself as a woman. Oof. Rough stuff. So we don't have a fundy masculinity expert here yet. But I guess what I want to express to our listeners on this episode is how this overinflated, self-important, man comes first in everything, make yourself an impressionable piece of clay for a man to project everything he needs onto culture affected me, especially as a teenage girl, because that is what I'm an expert on. So I think this is something you've spoken on before. I, I'm trying to remember. I think it might have been like our, our marriage episode or IFB marriage episode that you are encouraged to assume aspects of your future husband's personality onto your own and to make your own interests make them be things that would be more appealing to him so was this a teaching that was primarily aimed at the girls or was it also set in mixed company so like did the boys have an expectation that their future wife would assume all of their share like all of his interests would become their shared interest simply because he likes them so i can't say for sure that i remember whether this was something that was being said in mixed company or whether the girls in the boys were getting the same message separately. I do think this was something that the boys I dated or boys I was interested in had an expectation of. It was dating advice. It might be in dating with a purpose. Yes. Yeah. Like if the guy you like likes video games, get into video games. If the guy you like likes stars, Star Wars, you're now a Star Wars fan. That <laughs> This is how I pretended to like Lord of the Rings for several years because statistically most funny guys are either super into either Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia or both. And it took me so long to admit that I do not give a flying f about Lord of the Rings. <laughs> It's like, it's an okay book series. It's a pretty good movie. That is it for me. I do not like Lord of the Rings. And I spent so long pretending that I was super into it because all the funny boys were. So I, that, that reminds me of the thing that we don't talk about on the podcast that you told me about Lord of the Rings. Right. Um, <laughs> um what I will say on the podcast is that some fundy guys are really into Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> <laughs> In like a, a super intense way. As, as far as guys... Take that how you will. <laughs> people are going to take that dirty and it's actually not. It, it's actually worse than you think it is. It's worse than you think it is, but it's not sexual. Figure that one out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes like there are people I know do not listen to the show and never will. And honestly, like good for them for protecting their mental health. But sometimes I wish they did. 
So as far as guys oh, expecting man. you to take on their interests, though, my experience was even if you were just being friends with a guy with no romantic intention going on there, they would kind of just expect the topics of conversation to be their stuff. There wasn't much expectation of reciprocity. They would be like they wouldn't be into or interested in hearing about whatever you were into. It was you are going to be interested about hearing whatever they were into. Also, though, what is a teenage girl in the IFB supposed to be into? Sewing? Baking? Taking care of babies? It's not real interesting stuff. My only real interest at the time was music. And you weren't even like allowed to listen to the, the like the good stuff. Yeah. So like what guy wants all- to hear about my struggles with learning Bach <laughs> or like Maybe. how much I like the Brandenburg concertos. <laughs> Maybe you get a guy who's also really into like classical music. I was I looking. I was looking. I really was. That's, oh, that's rough stuff. Oh, that is frustrating. I had a friend who was a, a, a classical pianist. Um, there was never anything romantic between us, but I did have like a couple of friends who were super into classical music and that was nice. That's a good topic of conversation if you like get somebody who really knows it, you know. Yeah, and like, I did at the yeah. time. Like at the time I was listening to classical radio like hours and hours a week and I'm sorry, that is really frustrating. But like I mean, you, you said earlier, if you say you got tired of nobody talking to you and then you broke down and you talking to a guy yourself and you say you know you talk for like an hour or whatever before somebody gets mad at you is that what you would talk about would it just be like whatever he wanted to talk about yeah a lot of it would be like me saying tell me about this thing that you like and then he'd just wind him up and let him go for an hour about whatever his interest was asking questions which is a valuable life skill i wish i hadn't had to learn it through trauma (laughs) But it is a valuable life skill to just like know how to wind somebody up and let them go on about their interests. And that's one of, that's one of those things like, well, I'll take this skill, <laughs> I guess. Um, it was like the most exhilarating thing ever, though, because I was being so flirty and forward and leading men on by standing like six feet away from them in a public place, listening to them yammer on about something. I got to say, I know from experience that 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 listening to a man talk about something for over an hour is every girl's dream. Very much so. Yes, very much. A hundred percent true fact. Just guys, if you're listening, just talk for hours and hours and hours on whatever it is you want to talk about and she will fall in love with you, man. That is our like four male listeners just got like really good advice. (laughs) I mean, it's just like me giving advice on how to get girls to fall in love with you is like Bill Gothard giving uh, parenting (laughs) advice. I am deeply unmarried and he is... (laughs) deeply not a father (laughs) i am i am just really glad that i got the experience of listening to i pray you put this journal away it really cleared up some things for me it helped me understand some of the effects of these things on the guys as well and i do um i don't often like officially officially recommend stuff on our show but this one is it's truly worth it i definitely recommend that you listen especially if like it's something that we're citing in in a Mm -hmm. way like this then you know it's it's good to pay homage to the original source material so before we wrap this episode up there is another topic that i think that we should talk about because we've got actually a couple more topics because especially we're, we're talking about what men are looking for in a wife so if you don't mind i'd like to take this time to talk about what men are told with regards to purity culture. I'll give you everything I have. I'm definitely going to want some second opinions on this. I think the shame, the guilt, and the repression 
of purity culture tend to fall on everyone equally, but the, in my opinion, the enforcement of it falls more on women. I remember boys being told to guard their eyes from suggestive images like advertisements or commercials that they might see, that sort of thing. I remember boys being told to look away, look down if they saw something inappropriate. But I think it goes back to the way that fundamentalists tend to frame sex as something that is done by a man to a woman. So with purity culture, all the guys have to do is don't do the sex to anybody. The girls are responsible not only for not allowing the sex to be done to them, but also for not making anyone want to do the sex to them, nor giving anyone the opportunity to do the sex to them. But if the enforcement of purity culture falls primarily on women, are like you said, does that mean that men are allowed a bit more leeway? What do you mean by leeway? Like in actions or in thoughts? Well, I mean, you, you said like they, they said that, you know, men think about sex every seven seconds. And it's like, uh, like you can't keep it away from them, you know, or, or whatever. They're like insatiable. But like, say a teenage couple gets caught having sex or they get found out by somebody for some reason. What is the punishment going to be? Is it going to be worse for the boy or is it going to be worse for the girl? Oh, okay. If they're in IFB school, they are both going to be expelled. In a lot of churches, they would have to do a public confession or public shaming of some kind. I think the punishment would be roughly equal for both, at least in the majority of churches. What would be different is the perception and the way that it's talked about. And I don't know if this is going to translate into your mind as an outsider, but the way it gets discussed or the way that they're spoken to, it's going to be in the sense of both of them are responsible, but she's more responsible. Like, they shouldn't have done that. Mm but it would never have happened if she hadn't allowed it. Like, they shouldn't have had sex, but it would have never happened if she hadn't been in the same room with a man alone. The final decision to do something, quote-unquote, immoral always falls on the woman. There's also the fact that I think he is going to be able to socially recover a lot better. His standing in the church can be restored a lot more easily than hers can. He can go on and get married. There's not going to be a lasting shame with him. She is forever broken. Mm. It be it's because the IFB think the hymen is like a freshness seal, you know, <laughs> like mm. you can't put the seal like you can't put the lid back on a can. Um, so she's going to have a hard time finding an IFB spouse unless she marries the guy that she had sex with. It will follow him for a year or even years, but it will follow her potentially for the rest of her life. I knew a Ooh. couple at Hiles Anderson, who got caught having sex, and she was expelled and never came back. And he was expelled, but then got back in the next semester. And I don't know if it was like a shame thing, like she felt like she couldn't face the student body, or she couldn't live with the shaming. Um, My my feeling at the time, and what I heard through the grapevine at the time, was that she was not allowed to come back, and he was. If she wants to get married, even if she goes and she like confesses everything that she did publicly and does all of this stuff to like rededicate herself to Jesus in a very in like a very public way, it goes through all of that pain and all of that that shame. She's still going to be seen as like damaged goods and therefore she's not going to be marriageable. Is that what I'm Yeah, there's there's no such thing as full recovery from that sort of thing as a woman. Like they would literally, I know that you used damaged goods like as a phrase, but they would literally call her that. If even if there's 
not like 100% recovery for a man, there's at least maybe 95% recovery for the man or the boy in the situation. There's maybe 50 to 50 to 60% recovery possible for the woman. So what if like, even if the sex was non-consensual, so if it was like a rape or, you know, say she was coerced in some way, she would still be the one that, that bears the brunt of the humiliation. Yeah. I, that's, that's what I believe. Um, we didn't have quite the situation in my church, so I can't tell you specific stories, but you see this echoed in like the many, many cases of teenage girls being groomed by IFB pastors and youth pastors. Often these men get to move on to pastoral positions positions at other churches, but the young woman or the teenage girl involved just has her life destroyed. Mm, yeah. Dam- no, damaged goods. That's such a weird phrase. I mean, I was just thinking about, like, I feel like, like when, when you talk about it like this, it's almost like, say, we're like the GM of a football team and we're deciding whether or not it, to sign a running back who has like a history of knee injuries, you know, oh, it's a risk, but it might pay off. You can get this guy for like the minimum salary. Like Mm -hmm. that's. I I wish mm. to God that wasn't the way that marrying a girl with a quote unquote checkered past was Mm. talked about in the IFB. And I really wish that it didn't also apply to victims of sexual assault, but that's the way that it, that's the way that it is. Yeah. I I was going to say earlier, I think in this hypothetical situation where teenage boy and girl are caught he could still repent go to bible college marry some hiles anderson girl who kept herself pure for marriage and all of that she wouldn't really have that option like she would be very very lucky to marry a top tier preacher boy she would kind of get relegated to like the second or third or fourth tier of preacher boy that's if she was top tier to begin with right yeah Mm. I'm not going to say that like when I was growing up that a lot that these ideas were non-existent when I was learning about sex because you know it's like you go to public school um you talk about sex and stuff with your friends and in those formative years none of you know anything because you're what you're like 12 you're 13 you're 14 so half of what you know is playing telephone with whatever your friends have been told you know what i'm saying but for me it wasn't like the oh pure purity is like a spiritual thing it was more like the more people you have sex with the greater risk there are of stds like people were big on like oh stds you know scaring you about that like and i said i think in our pride month episode my dad was telling me about being in medical school in san francisco during the height of the aids epidemic and that really scared me mm-hmm. so was that something that you heard about like with the risk of stds being something you heard about a lot yeah definitely but the the framing that i was hearing it in was if you're a virgin and your spouse is a virgin when you get married if you stay faithful to each other then you're guaranteed to never get an std i heard a story a lot growing up about a man who had sex with someone he wasn't married to just one time he thought he'd get away with it he thought no one would ever know and then he got married and he had a baby and the baby was born blind because he had contracted an std from the one night stand that he had so stds are like god's way of punishing those who 
what discarded their purity or it depends on who is preaching or what point they're trying to make because it could be number one stds are punishment on people who are immoral like god specifically looks down and says you're being immoral i'm gonna smite you with this disease it could also be framed though as stds are part of the curse of sin and they just randomly happen to people who sin so it Hmm. so some people would believe um oh smoking's a sin if you smoke god is going to look down on you and say you're wicked i'm gonna smite you with lung cancer other people would look at it and say smoking is a sin and if you commit that sin you increase your risk for running up against the sin curse and getting lung cancer so were you specifically taught that hiv and aids was god's punishment against homosexuals and drug users i know a lot of people who were taught this super specifically. I was only somewhat taught this. So number one, I should point out that I did not know that HIV could be spread by non-sexual means, specifically sharing needles, until I was much older. I also did not know that women and AFAB people could be infected at all. I thought it was impossible. I thought you had to have a Y chromosome to get it. Really? Yeah. So so I was definitely taught that this is like a specific curse on gay men. But I was more taught that HIV happened because humans had sex with animals. And there is some really awful racism behind this that I'm not going to get into today. But now it spreads through gay sex specifically. So it's not God looking down and saying, I saw you have the gay sex. Now I'm going to smite you with AIDS. It's not that. It's just that it's part of the curse of sin and doing that. Sin, with the biggest air quotes I can possibly muster, opens you up to experiencing that part of the curse of sin. Wow. Um, Sorry, then my answer to that one was yes and no. It's it's still a terrible answer. (laughs) Oh, oh, yeah. So there's one final topic that I want to bring up uh, regarding toxic masculinity before we wrap this one up. And I'm surprised that this hasn't come up yet in this episode. uh, But I was wondering if you wanted to talk about the lengths that men will go to to avoid appearing gay. Because like this was absolutely a thing in normie world when I was in middle, middle school, at least. Like I can only imagine how much of a thing it must have been for you in Fundy World. So I want your opinion on this. What I think is the case about the real world is that calling people gay is an insult or trying to shame your friends if they do something that you think is feminine. I think in the real world that this mainly happens in middle school and high school, maybe a little bit in college, but you kind of grow out of it as you grow up. And that also it's peer to peer. You're not saying this to people 10 years older or 10 years younger than you. It's it's amongst people roughly your own age. And it's something that you do amongst people your own age until you outgrow it. Am I getting that right? Mm, so I don't know if it was so much something that we outgrew. I, I think maybe it's also that like society shifted. At least where, like, so where I was living, calling someone gay was no longer like an acceptable insult by the time, like by the time I was like halfway through high school. So I was in middle school from 2004 to 2007. And when I was in sixth and seventh grade, people would call each other gay all the time. You know, people use the F slur all the time. Like I remember when I was in sixth grade, I grew like four inches in three months or something like that. And in the spring, when I went to school wearing a pair of shorts that were like a bit shorter than they were in the fall, like they weren't like, I wasn't wearing like short shorts, like, you know, track shorts or something like that. They were just a pair of shorts. This one kid in my class, like came up to me in recess and then he hit me in the balls and told me that it's gay to wear shorts that don't go past your knees. 
And so then I'm just like, oh, I guess I got to get new shorts now. Like Ugh. he, like he, he knows better than I would. I'm just like, I, I guess that's that must be true. Like I don't like that at all. I, I mean, I did. I, I mean, I'm sure you, you like. Oh, I'm sure you disliked it considerably more than I do. I got hit in the balls, dude. It wasn't fun. I've, I've heard that that's highly yeah. unpleasant. But even in middle school, so before things shifted with society to where that sort of thing is really unacceptable. It wasn't older adults, like it wasn't your rabbi or your parents or your teachers using this insult. Oh god, no. Right. No. <laughs> like this was your peers. Yeah. Okay. No, like you wouldn't hear it from adults except maybe like really immature adults. Like, like your super I, so drunk I, uncle. Yeah, I didn't I didn't have a super drunk uncle. But, but like, you know, the, like the hypothetical, stereotypical super drunk uncle. Yeah, that's that's the type of I think so by the time I was in eighth grade though, I was in eighth grade from like two thousand seven to two thousand eight. There were kids in my class who actually were gay. And you knew that they were gay and they knew that they were gay. And so it was weirder. So like the, the anti-gay bullying got different because it was like, oh, you hang out with Michael at recess. You're going to go kiss him behind the portal like like that. It's it, it, like it just felt like the stakes got higher. You know what I'm saying? Like you had to watch who you were hanging out with because you right. didn't want people like, to think. Yeah, you had to make like a conscious decision. Like if I'm going to hang out with this person, it's going to affect how I'm perceived and how am I going to deal with that? Yeah, and I wasn't I wasn't cool at all <coughs> either. So it was just, like it, it was just like another thing for them to pick on you for. Like the best, like if you weren't cool, you know, because like if you got picked on the best way to avoid really getting picked up try to fly under the radar you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. like you you fly under the. i was never good at that but i knew that there were like a couple of things you know if i did this or if i did that or if i did the other thing then i would get picked on especially bad and so those were the things that i was going to avoid oh that makes sense yeah so based on that description i feel like the fundy world was probably pretty similar to the non-fundy world as far as the f slur being used people using gay as an insult, just that sort of very typical toxic behavior. I think the main difference that I'm hearing from you is that the kind of bullying in the IFB was definitely coming from adults as well. Like this is something that you would hear from your youth pastor or your teacher or even from behind the pulpit, like especially like at teen conferences, like, like I, you would hear a preacher like, like you teenage boys, you are acting like F slurs and you need to get it together and love the Lord. And I don't want you acting like a bunch of F slurs and not going out soul winning. And I don't want you like, it, like you'd hear that from the pulpit, which Wow. Saying it out loud seems extremely shocking. It seems ridiculous to me. I mean, can you imagine a rabbi getting up and giving that as part of his what's what's it called? Devar Torah, is that right? Well, yeah, but like if if you that, that's just not something that I would hear at least one of any any I, I'm sure that there's like lots of people who are like, you know, who are listening to this now and who didn't grow up in like a homophobic church or something. And they're like, wow, I can't imagine my pastor saying that or my priest saying that. Like, I, just, yeah. I think it's horrendously inappropriate to think about anyone saying that in a religious building ever. Yeah. But that's like that's like the world that I grew up in. So it's similar toxic stuff, but it's just super culturally ingrained. It's way more than something that you do to your peers. 
you want to know the ironic thing about that what? is that like say like say say like hypothetically you're a church kid and you're like hey do you want to come over to my house uh we're having a sleepover uh, like pizza party uh saturday night and like no i can't do that i have to go to church be like oh no dude church is super gay like that's that's what people would say right yeah could, but like the church is where they're telling you if you don't go soul winning that's then oh. you're super gay <laughs> so yeah it, it's i'm sorry same, i shouldn't laugh at this but it's well like it's the same toxic concept it's just coming from more directions i think in the yeah. ifb so there was a boy in my school and it came out that no pun intended that his father was gay and he had been trying to keep it a really big secret and oh, when it came man. out i did see him get picked oh. on quite a bit i don't recall any teachers or adults actually bullying him over it i just i feel like they ostracized him like they didn't it was like people wanted him not to have any close friends at school Mm. because they didn't want the rest of us to get infected with the gay and they're not like if he's getting bullied they're not going to do anything to stop it either are they teachers at my school never did anything about bullying in general (laughs) like really teachers at my school watched people including me get beat up in front of them and just watched it like it was entertainment like if they had had time they would have gone and popped some popcorn just like full-on like throwing punches just like pounding yep like you know pinned down or like pushed up against a chain link fence and just like pummeled i mean yeah like i didn't get beat up like seriously seriously bad but i got in fights all the time in front oh. of teachers Wow. I only I mean, got that, I only got like really injured a couple times. That's just so foreign to me because I think I mean there's a couple of times in elementary school, middle school when I got in trouble for getting in fights, but like it was always a situation where like as soon as somebody sees it they're like they step in immediately break it up and like they'll like fucking drag you apart from each other just so yeah so i i did get beat up or like you know hit in front of teachers more than once um but i also i also got beat up not in front of teachers and told teachers and they didn't do anything about it but that's that's neither here nor there i want to get back to you hit me well hit him back you gay like (laughs) yeah yeah that was it was it was kind of that yeah Wow. But to get back to your original question, I think if you take the same bullying and general culture around this topic that you experienced in middle school, but then you just magnify it to the size of your entire life, you'd get a pretty good picture of this. Like, it sounds like you felt pressure to defend yourself against people using homophobic slurs at you. You're like defending yourself from peers, deflecting that kind of behavior from peers, feeling like, like, do I need to participate in this to not have negative consequences on myself, like tackling those issues. So just imagine having to be on defense against that all the time from every other male in your life, including adults, just constantly on defense and constantly watching your behavior. That's what I think it was like for IFB boys based on my observation. Like we said, uh, earlier this episode in a few months we're going to have a guest on who you know really experienced growing up as as a boy in the ifb um we're going to talk with him about this and uh i'm sure that he's got some stories to tell us and that's going to be really cool i seriously cannot wait is there anything else that you would like to get to for this episode not really uh, I think I think that just about covers it. That's like kind of a, a big. We we had some really good discussion this episode. I'm really happy about it. Um, I am too. Make sure that you guys, if you're listening to this now, make sure that you tune in next week. Sadie, do you want to talk about what we're gonna do next week? Because it's good. 
why don't you tell them? I think next week's episode is kind of your time to shine. Oh, God. Is it? I mean, I'll uh, be there, but I think your humor is really going to come through on that one. God. Okay. So in honor of next week being being our Valentine's Day episode, Sadie and I have gotten our hands on not just one. Uh, we've gotten our hands on two Fundy Sex Manuals. Okay, as in books slash pamphlets slash PDFs uh, whose purpose it is to instruct young couples on how to do the dirty. As in, this is what they give you uh, 90 days before your wedding day just so that you know the basics. So we are going to, yeah, we are going to read and review them. Uh, So that's what we're going to do for Valentine's Day. Should be fun. Uh, Yeah. We we love our listeners and we love our patrons, so we really like to do something fun and special for you around Valentine's Day. Yeah, and speaking of patrons, uh, we are going to have a Patreon-exclusive episode coming out for Valentine's Day uh, where we review a CD of Fundy-approved sex jams, as in Fundy-approved music to listen to while you coit. <laughs> <laughs> we're going yeah we're gonna well we're gonna also talk about uh, other music related things including a, a concert that sadie and i recently attended a satanic concert yeah a satanic sadie and i went to a satanic concert uh like a week ago it was a fun time uh we're gonna talk about that as well but the the fundy sex plate well, man i listened to it's i'm not gonna spoil it man but it's <laughs> oh man yeah so patrons watch out for that uh Keep your eyes out. It'll be super fun. I also want to do a um, Faith Promise Missions video chat this month because it's my birthday month. Oh, it'll be fun. I need to get you a present. I haven't gotten you a present You don't have to get me a Uh, present. Yes, I do. You love birthdays. I do love birthdays. I like the most annoying thing about the pandemic is that I haven't been able to have my birthday for like three years. But my dad told me that the way that things are going, I'll probably be able to have a birthday party in May. So that should be exciting. Yeah, it should be exciting. So I expect three times as many birthday presents from everybody who's invited and, and um, a big cake and a huge party. And if you don't go, then uh, I'm cutting you out of my life forever. But uh, no pressure. I'm going to make you a vegan cake. What? I'm not vegan. I know, but you're lactose intolerant. And the only meat, like animal products that go into a cake are dairy. Not eggs? Okay, fine. Fine, fine. Do you want me to learn how to make you a lactose-free birthday cake? Yeah, we'll figure it out. Okay. Um. Anyway, uh, I think that's it. That's the end of this episode. Uh, if, you, if you like our show, if you're a fan of our show, subscribe to our Patreon. You'll get exclusive and bonus episodes. Um, you can follow the Leaving Eden podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Leaving Eden Podcast on Twitter at Leaving Eden Pod. Sadie, would you like to plug your social media? You can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter at Hell Yes Sadie, and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. And you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at G A B R I E L H A C O H E N. I hope you guys have a nice day. Bye bye.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.